After the first service, I couldn't tell if I looked more like the Pope or the Godfather. I wasn't sure exactly. Sometimes I feel like the Godfather, the last scene when Michael's sitting in that seat and he kind of keels over at the end, but it's not that severe. I mean, some of you said I look pitiful, which I appreciate this morning. Uh, no, I, I know that's in love. Those of you who uh, are new and wondering why I'm sitting up here, I, uh, October 14th, I had a knee injury when I was playing soccer with some brothers. We have a, have a team here at the church. and We play in a league and uh, my career ended that night, October 14th. And uh, so I had surgery 10 days ago. And uh, you have four ligaments in your knees, four ma- major ligament groups. And, and uh, I managed to ding up three of those ligament groups. One of them just, just tear, tore a little and it was, they could leave it so they didn't have to deal with that in surgery. And two of them they had to reconstruct. But uh, I feel good. I think you know, the Lord has been healing me. And I thank you for your prayers. Everyone's been very, very kind, overly kind even to me. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate your letting me sit. You know, for Italians, if you, you'd have a problem if I hurt my hand because then if I couldn't move my hand, I couldn't talk. But my feet aren't going to be a problem. I'll be able to speak just fine. I'll be able to talk well enough. And I'll only be able to give convicting glares around the corner every so often. Hi, Jeffy. I'll see you over there. But, and I'll check back. But for the most part, I think this will work just fine. This morning, I want to start a, an Advent series for four weeks. And the reason uh, that I find this so timely and, and it works so well is we've just finished an exposition of Philippians walking through that book over a year and a half together. And we will start an exposition in January through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So this gives us a great time to, especially in this season, to take four weeks to reflect upon what the church has recognized as, as the Advent season and the events around the Advent season. You know, I, I believe that probably the reason why uh, the church in Europe, when they uh, decided to t- make a church calendar, if you will, and make this time frame, these, these uh, last weeks, if you will, of our year as we think of it, but really it's the beginning of the Christian year and it's the birth of Christ. It walks through the the life of Jesus. I think it starts in December because it's winter most places and I think it's a little depressing in the winter and focusing on the coming of Christ uh, is exciting and that's what we want it to be and I want us to ponder this this season and I want us to slow down enough to really consider what Advent means. So we'll spend some time during this special time. And it's a special time for most people in our culture. Even, unfortunately, you know, those who don't know Jesus still find it special somehow. They get together with family. Things are different. Uh, the mood is different. But for us who are Christians, this should be one of the more special times as we consider Christ and who he is and why it's about him. And so it's a special time, and it's a time for us to do several things. And I would like us to uh, take time to ponder this morning. I want us also to take time to consider praising him as a result of his coming. Also, it's time to party. You know, it's okay to have gatherings and fellowships together during this time. That's a great time of enhancing our relationships together. That's part of what Jesus has done. He's opened up our relationships, making us right with the Father first. It's also a time to plan as we look ahead to January and the new year. And finally, it's a time to proclaim. We'll cover those different uh, things we can ponder throughout Advent this year. Now, I want to begin by reading a passage that will guide us through the rest of our study, our series, and today will be of particular focus. It comes from Luke 2, verses 15 through 20. I have that verse listed in your insert, on your insert in your bulletin. And this comes from Luke 2, that famous passage of the birth of Jesus. Some of you have memorized it, have heard it since your time, the time you were a child. But I'm just going to take these verses, 15 through 20, and read them. In particular, uh, we'll pay attention to verse 19 as it guides us. Hear God's word from Luke 2:15 through 20. 
When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your plan of redemption amazes us. Your careful providential ordering of events to make all things work together for the salvation of your people. For your glory is a wonder we want to appreciate. Appreciate it more fully this Advent and Christmas season even. Very personally, Lord, we thank you, Christ, that you've come to save us, and you have. Lord God, please draw us closer to yourself and to each other during this season of Advent. Please slow us down so that we might ponder the truly important things in this life and the life to come. And I pray this with eager expectation in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. It seems like uh, moms uh, or the lady of the house, uh, they're the last person that can enjoy all the gatherings that we have when we have people over to the house. Uh, They're the ones that are the busiest. I know when my wife has uh, people over, she's so busy practicing hospitality that she doesn't often have opportunity to sit and visit and just take in the fellowship that she can have with those who have come into her home. I saw this in her mom, and Sherry's mom, a few days ago when we all gathered at their house for Thanksgiving. Uh, It was pretty profound because all of uh, my mother-in-law's children were there and her grandchildren. So that's a special thing for her to have us all. I'm not sure there have been too many occasions where we've been able to do that, all of us together to have a meal, maybe a few other holidays, but this is Uh, Probably the first one with uh, her youngest grandchild only being a little over a year old that we just had everybody together. And she was just loving that. But at the same time, she's super busy. I mean, just the hostess of hostesses. And she was serving and serving and serving us. And we came to the meal and there's this kind of this culminating event where we had this meal and all the stuff's on the table. And she kind of takes the position at the end of the table and she makes sure everything gets moved around and everybody gets something or more than something usually. Now she'll take some and put it on her plate as it goes by. But Usually the prayer happens and it's close to 15 minutes before she takes the first bite of anything because she's just so busy serving everybody. That's what she does. She's a hostess. She's practicing hospitality. But this year I did notice a a brief moment that was special and that is after she had seen everybody served and before anyone else went for another shot at the pumpkin bread, she was able to stop for a moment before she sat at her own plate and she said, I'm just so thankful everybody can be here. I know that she really meant that, to have all her children and grandchildren there. And it was just a brief moment, but it was a genuine moment of absorption. She was absorbing the moment in the midst of all the busyness and the work and and the fury of it all to stop and say, I'm so happy we're all together. Now, I would suggest to you that your life, if it's like mine, and I'm sure it is, at least relative to you, it's busy. We in Western culture are super busy all the time. And I would challenge you to slow down long enough, at least for a brief moment of absorption, and think about stuff, ponder it, consider it. I mean, that's exactly what you have happening with Mary in this verse where she treasures up and she ponders. I mean, in the midst of a whirlwind of things, she stops and pauses, and Luke thinks it's so important that he puts that verse there. Slow down just long enough at least to to take a breath, breathe it in. 
Drink deeply of it for a moment. Appreciate it. Ponder it. This time of Advent is at first a time to ponder things. That's what I want to challenge us to do. Let us not become so busy in this time, in this season. You know, our regular busyness with the busyness of visiting and gift-getting in events to be at in all the things that go on at this time of the year with, with kids out of school and all the many things that make it even busier. In the midst of all that busyness, let's not become so busy that we fail to slow down and ponder what it means and how incredibly important it is for our lives that Christ has come. This is what Mary did. Look at verse 19 in our passage before us. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, why do you suppose in the midst of a cosmically significant event like the birth of Christ, something that had thousands of years preceding it between the first prophecy and its actualization, all the moving pieces, people coming from afar, all people in the different stratas of society being affected by it, all these big things are surely bigger than little old Mary. Why does Luke include this verse? One might say, with all due respect, who cares about what Mary felt at that moment? Look at everything that's happening. It's bigger than her. Well, God does care. This is exactly why this verse is here. There's a pause to treasure and ponder on purpose. It's big, yes, bigger than any one of us, but it's also little too. It's about you. It affects you. Not exactly the same way it affected Mary, but very much like it affected Mary, because this is not just Mary's son, this is her Savior. God cares about each of us individually, and yes, he's moving all things to his own glory. Much of what happens as God moves is definitely bigger than us, but he wants us to know that we ought to stop, pause, treasure, ponder. Look at verse 19 again, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, a whole lot has happened in Mary's life before verse 19 is recorded. Okay, think about this for a moment. It's safe to say that her life was an absolute whirlwind over the prior year. Consider what Luke says in the first chapter all the way to to this point in verse 19. Uh, You you know probably from your own uh, recollection of the story, a lot transpired to bring us to this moment in the passage that I'm referring to. First, we know that Mary lived in a, a relatively poor family. This is mostly the case for Jews who were not in the Sanhedrin anyways, in the Roman Empire, uh, under the thumb of the Romans, probably a relatively poor existence. Uh, And here she is, receives word that her older cousin, who was supposed to be past childbearing uh, years, is pregnant. Well, that's exciting in itself. But then she receives receives similar news from an angel also. Uh, The problem is, now it's about her, and deeper into the problem is that she is not married and she's a virgin. And so this is got to be staggering and world up turning for her as she receives this news and this calling. She is in a relationship with a man named Joseph who surely will ditch her as soon as he finds out that she's pregnant. But God miraculously sends yet another angel and angelic visitors are not common. I mean, we read them in the Bible, we think of them as more common, but hundreds of years will go on between these visits. In all in one short period of time, several angelic visits, now another one to Joseph saying, it's okay. The child that is conceived in her is of God, is God. So all this stuff happening, she's undergoing a lot here. Socially, the community now is going to uh, probably react poorly to her, at least, at most, maybe try to put her out. Relationally, she embarrasses her immediate family and confuses distant family and friends as well. Economically, it would be very costly to have this baby at this time, at this place. 
emotionally, it has, has to have been a whirlwind of confusion. Uh, physically, now she's pregnant. It's no wonder that in verse one, uh, 29 of chapter 1, it says she was greatly troubled. Of course, she had to be. I mean, we can get that. We can, we can taste that a bit. And she has knowledge of messianic prophecies, so as this is converging together, it's got to be weighing on her heavily. Then she had to travel a long, long distance, a dangerous distance, knowing that her due date would be during that time. She has the baby in a barn. She receives a supernaturally appointed visit from shepherds. Now, shepherds to us are not uh, the clean-shaven guys in the field with a staff that you know, look also wonderful and socially with it. That's quite the opposite. To be a shepherd, you're generally kind of nomadic, a bit uh, on your own and living out for days and weeks and months even without showering or anything like it, living with sheep. And all these individuals are called by God clearly to follow the star by the way that's shining brightly. All this is happening to her. I mean, it's heavy stuff that's going on. And then as if there weren't enough angelic visits, another shout for joy as Jesus is born and the angels proclaim his birth. This has all happened inside of a short period of time and we come to the passage before us and God sees it as important to insert this description of what Mary did. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Luke describes Mary as treasuring and pondering and this is the the challenge I have before us as a congregation during this season that we would treasure up and ponder this year. Every year will require new treasuring and pondering because we all grow. Things change. New events transpire during our year that you can't foresee right now. I would not have foretold that I'd be sitting here this day preaching to you this way last year. You don't know what's coming up in a month, two months, three months. So treasure and ponder while you have opportunity. What does it mean by treasuring up these things? Well, treasuring simply means that you find something valuable so you put it in a safe place. You click save on the document. Okay, it's important. You don't want to lose it. So you take it and you put it somewhere safe. You guard it, as it were. Now, you have many things happen to you, but you don't all have them as equal value. You don't think of them all the same way. You'd have to be jarred to think of certain things. Other things are right there, and you remember it because you treasure them and you put them in a safe place. What does it mean that she pondered them in her heart? This means she takes them from that place of treasure, or as the treasure they are, and she rehearses them. She goes over them in her mind. She uh, contemplates them again and again. She rehearses the events and the promises that occurred in her life at this time over this last year, the events she ties together with what she knows from God's big picture, wondering about what will happen immediately and then the future. And she ponders this. She rehearses this. She mulls over this. She considers it deeply. She reflects upon it. This is what treasuring and pondering means. And this is what we are called to do regularly. And I think right now, especially we think of what it means that Christ has come. Let me just suggest a few things that you can ponder this day. First, ponder God's careful working out of redemption in history. I want to start on the macro picture, dial into the more personal, and then the very personal. First, though, ponder, all of us ponder for a moment God's careful working out of redemption in history. You know, a whole lot had to come together to save you. A lot. A lot had to come together to bring me salvation. Now, it's not all about me, but for God to bring glory to himself, this is part of what he unfolds, is the saving of people by bringing them to faith in his son. Now, that rolls off my lips pretty easily, to trust in Christ and you will be saved. I believe it. That's what Jesus said when someone asked. Believe in me. No doubt it's simple to say, but make no mistake, it was complex to make it happen. 
you know, I've learned a lot about medical things when they're related to yourself. You know, you start to read and eat and go and start to study these things. And, you know, for me, when the injury happened, I knew very clearly I was going to have need surgery. There's no way this thing was going to get heal up. Uh, trust me. Having said that, to me, the answer was simple. I'm going to have to have surgery. It's going to mean this amount of time. That's simple. But for the surgeon, this is much more complex. Now, he doesn't bother to give me all the details because he knows I won't understand much of it. But to me, it's simple to say I need surgery. Fix it. For him, though, at least in my case, it took two hours just to repair the post-lateral corner, a term I never would have known before this, which is the outside ligament structure outside of your knee. It's very complex. It's many different ligaments coming together, and it just takes a lot of time to sew those back together. So me saying surgery fix to him means two hours of tedious surgery, and it also means all the years of preparation that he put in to get to the point where he could do that. It's far more complex the things that had to weave together to fix me than just me saying, I got to get fixed. Well, God has saved me. But there's a lot more to it than that. Contemplate the work of God's redemption that he does that is displayed for us in Scripture. It's big, but it's also very narrow as you start to think about it. In Genesis 3.15, the very beginning of the Bible, right after man falls, we have the first message of the gospel where God says to the woman who had just sinned and to the, who Satan, her Satan and then to the woman who has sinned, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There, God makes the declaration that he will bring about salvation by having the seed of the woman who would ultimately come from the woman crush the devil. And I would submit to you from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the advent of Christ and even the working out of it that it goes on today, all of what happens between those two markers, Genesis 3 and the advent of Jesus, is the working out of bringing Jesus to crush Satan. That's what the Bible's about, is a picture of God's redemption worked out over time. In the end, the seed of the woman is realized in the person of Jesus. And all these thousands of years come together finally, woven together, stitched together, to have this result of salvation. You know, the Bible is the story of God's redemption of sinners. And ponder that reality today. Don't lose it. Please don't lose it. You know, there are lots of details in the Bible, all sorts of stuff. Some of it's complex, no doubt. But don't lose the big picture that it's the story of God saving sinners through Christ. It's saving sinners through Christ in Genesis 3, and it's the same way all the way through the Old Testament and right till his coming and the proclamation thereof after. It's about the saving of sinners by Christ, through Christ. Some will say, well, how so? That Old Testament, that's so unevolved. It's so primitive. All those wars, all that immorality, all those things done. Those people just weren't as developed as we are religiously and spiritually and intellectually. Really. The Old Testament is often misunderstood, I believe, because it's viewed too often as a book of heroes and morality. It's not what it's about. At least that's not the main thing it's about. The Bible itself, but the Old Testament also, is about one righteous hero against the backdrop of immorality, lostness, and misery in its Christ. It's the truth about humanity. And it isn't it great to those critics, I like to say, that we don't have wars anymore, that we don't have all that immorality going on, that we're so evolved now? That's a joke. In fact, one might argue it's worse by sheer numbers anymore and technology. 
The Bible is the working out of the events that bring about the advent of Christ. And make no mistake that the Bible gives us the ageless story of our need of salvation and God's provision. And it gives us the ageless remedy who is Christ. The same remedy always and the same problem always today, just like it was when it was first written. Spend time pondering this working of God, this careful working of God. Whereas in Galatians 4, the verse that Nathan read for our assurance of pardon, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come means when everything had been woven together over the years and the years and the years, when it was done, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ponder God's careful working out of redemption in history. Uh, Some suggestions for doing this this season. In your bulletin, I put Advent readings. Here's one option for you as a family or an individual. Use those in devotional times. Read through those. They walk you through the process of prophecy all the way to Christmas Eve and the coming of Jesus. Something you can do. If you miss one, you can go back and do the day before. They're not long. But they'll help you go through and ponder God's careful work of redemption. But also, when we ponder the work of God in redemption, I want you also to ponder this about God. His sovereignty and his providence working together. Sovereignty, his lordship over all, whatsoever comes to pass, and his providence in his personal working out of those things. He's personal about his big plan. Think about that and meditate upon that because I believe that it will help you in your walk this year and forever to know he's sovereign because there will be so much in your life you will not understand or you will not be able to figure out. You won't always know exactly what God's trying to teach you at that moment. But you do know that he is just as sovereign and providential in his working as he's ever been. And it's not an accident what's going on. This is not an oops. This isn't God got caught off guard. It's by the wisdom of one wiser than me, this is what has come to pass. And I can rest in that even when I don't understand it or even when it bothers me. Thankfully, he does control these things. Even the things that stink, that we don't like. Ponder that. Ponder it all together. I think it will change your outlook about your circumstances, your interpretation of the past, your ability to confront the present, and what may come in the future when the God of this plan of redemption is still the God today working out whatsoever comes to pass for his glory and ultimately for your good. But also ponder God's working out of redemption in your own life. Every one of you has a story to tell about this. Some of you have never known a day where you didn't know Christ. That's your story, and it's a blessed and deep one, where you can say that from the time I was young, my parents taught me the doctrines of grace, and I've never known a moment where I didn't realize that it's only Christ is my Savior that I can be right with God. That's a blessed testimony. Some of you have a more involved story of some other way in which God has interceded in your life and made it very clear that you needed Christ, gave you Christ, and now you're in him. But you know, in either case, God had to weave stuff together, sew things together, loose ends everywhere to bring it together for that to be true in your life. Ponder his careful working of your own redemption. We're using Luke 2.19, where Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Let's consider something else something else to ponder. Ponder also, if you will, the willingness of Jesus to come to earth as a man. I won't spend as much time here because we have spent time on this when we were in Philippians in particular, but I will address some of it because it's part of what we ought to ponder. It has to be part of what Mary pondered. 
you know, pondering God's plan of redemption is a big picture item. Now we're dialing down a bit and considering this the fact that he would agree to come as a man for us, for me. That's a big thing. It blows your mind when you start to think about it. You know, when we think of humility or selflessness, we think in terms of fellow people. That's usually how we, we uh, put a value on it. Someone condescended for me. What's the greatest picture of condescension? Parenthood. You don't even know it until you become a parent. Kids are totally ungrateful. Sorry, kids, you're ungrateful. Then as you get older and you have kids, that's when it starts striking you. And then you're embarrassed almost about the way you were to your parents way back then. And and this process is, is, is repeated over and over and over through the generations. And it's the picture of condescension we probably most understand or relate with, that a parent would do so much for a child who never says thank you or can't even understand to say thank you for so many years, do so many things, order your life to take care of that one for so long. That's a picture of humble condescension, no doubt. But you know, all the examples we have of humility are other people serving us somehow. Get this with God, though. Yes, Jesus, the servant who washed feet when he was here, no doubt, but before he took that step to be the the God-man who is a servant, he had to agree to leave his father's throne to take on flesh. I mean, that's the first level condescension that should blow all our minds, that he was agreed and was willing to do this, to then sacrifice himself as a man. Certainly, we are frustrated at times with sin in the world, the way that we sin against others and those other people sin against us. But how would it be if you were not sinful and did not sin against others and all they did is sin against you? Yet, Jesus submits himself to this so that we could be saved. 2 Corinthians 2, 8 and verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty might become rich. Luther said it well, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, he says, is beyond all human understanding. Now allow me to suggest a few ways to ponder Christ's willingness to become man. Again, those readings that I gave you, pondering scripture uh, will be one way in which you can start to plumb the depths of what God has chosen to do and Jesus has agreed to do in coming as man to save us. Uh, He saves us in the same form in which the sin was committed. Man committed the sin, Jesus comes as man, to save us from our sins. If you study scripture, you'll start to plumb the depths of that. I'm not saying you'll understand it completely. There's mysterious elements, of course. In fact, John Owen, the great Puritan divine, said it well that in the divine scriptures, there are shallows and there are deeps. Shallows where the lamb may wade and deeps where the elephant may swim. When you start getting into the incarnation of Jesus, you're starting to go where the elephants are swimming. But that's okay. And it's inexhaustible. Study it, read it, ponder it. That's one way. But also, if you ponder the incredible humility of Jesus, something else will happen. As you ponder his humility, it'll start to instill a humility in you that you have not seen before. We're all selfish by nature. And until we view the humble one, the ultimate humble one, and contemplate and ponder him, it'll be difficult for us to really be humble towards others. And we need humility to get along, to have peace. We have to give up of some of our own rights, as we have studied before, and as Paul said in Philippians. In fact, remember what Paul said to the Philippians. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He didn't come as a king the first time and, and have all that pomp and all that, that celebration and accolade. Instead, he came as a servant, a bond servant. And he did all this to save us, but also secondarily to give us example of how we can now be by his power in humility counting others more significant than yourselves. Jesus, is, his incarnation is referred to by Paul as a chief basis for why you and I could be humble towards one another. I don't know what your Christmas experience will be like, but for some of you it's really stressful. You're put back into places with folks, maybe family, that there's something that's gone on over the years. You've tried to make it right. Maybe you haven't and need to. And it's difficult for you to be in the same proximity. It brings stress to you. Holidays are stressful to you. Consider the example of Christ. Consider how he has borne what he has borne for us. That we can humble ourselves with that person or those people we're struggling with. And ask God to give us healing with them. Certainly we can humble ourselves as Christ has humbled himself. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It serves as a challenge for us. And I want to suggest a final way that we can ponder during this special season. Very personally now, dialing it down to the person. Ponder this Advent, if you will, how Christ has changed your life by his coming. We started big picture and we've dialed down now. It's since I'm already talking about Paul and we all have it fresh in our minds, if I were to ask you, what would Paul's view of Jesus be based on what you know from Philippians? I would hope that many of you, after thinking about it for a time, would say, I think I know what he'd say. Paul would say what he said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's a profound change in Paul's life. Let me be clear what Paul did not say. Please hear me, brothers and sisters. What Paul did not say. He did not say that Christ has become a very important part of my life. It's not what he said. Paul did not say that Christ has helped to make my life better. It's not what he said. Paul does not say that, you know what, I found Jesus and he's proved to be the missing part of my life. It's not what he says. Paul doesn't say that Christ has now given his life meaning. This is what he says. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. Life is Christ. That's a big difference between saying you Adam. You know, one of the scourges in the church today, among those who say they're Christians, is that they want to take Jesus as Savior, but they deny him as Lord and, and ruler. Well, that's not the Jesus of the Scripture. He comes as Savior and Lord. He is your life. And if your life's messed up, it's usually related to this picture. You could be a believer who has not yet understood that he is Lord over your life and loves you so much that he's going to continue to make certain things happen a certain way until you come to him fully. Or maybe just that you've been denying it all along and saying, if I just have this fire insurance called Jesus, I can do whatever else I want. But see, that is not what Advent calls us to. All this working of God, all that he has done and put together, he has done so to bring you to a devotion to him. He wants you to long for him. He wants you to, to just can't wait to get to church, to worship him. That, that's what he wants and what he's doing in us. Now, we all bog our life down with a whole bunch of other stuff. Every one of us, genuine believers. But let's stop for a minute and think about this. Christ is not just someone who makes our life a little better. He's not just an additive. He is our life. That's what it says. Please ponder that, brothers and sisters. I think much of the mess we make of our lives is related to our view of Christ. It's that real, that connected. 
Galatians 2.20 is another statement Paul made. You know, Philippians is an advanced statement of Paul. It's all by the Holy Spirit. But you could see Paul growing in his letters. In Philippians, he's probably the last letter he writes. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Very simple. In Galatians, the first book he probably writes, he says this. Same thing, but listen to how he puts it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The statements we read about Christ from those who truly understood do not paint a picture of Christ altering their life or affecting their life. No, Christ owns their life. Christ is our purpose. I love these new videos that have come out that have shown these these embedded professional choirs that go to these places and sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Most everybody here has probably seen the one from the Macy's in Philadelphia, this huge mall, five stories, and this awesome organ. And they start playing the Hallelujah Chorus, and over 600 choir members are there, and they just simultaneously start singing the Hallelujah Chorus in the midst of regular everyday shoppers who don't know what's going on. In the places, it sounds like a concert hall. It's incredible. Many of you have probably seen it. Well, I found one I like a little better, actually, and I put it on my blog first page of the blog, and it's actually in a mall somewhere in middle America where they have a hundred uh, choir members who are embedded in a food court in a mall. And there's Arby's right there, and they're all sitting eating, and they, they do a great job. You, when you watch it break out, you see how much they're getting into the part. These choir members are sitting with their families eating, and, and regular folk are mixing through, and there's a hundred. And, and all of a sudden, the music comes over the loudspeaker, and you just observe this transformation. And one lady gets up, and she sings the first part. So there's some solo parts given to what's normally the choir part until it builds and builds and builds to the final part of the Hallelujah Chorus. And I think that is absolutely tremendous how that looks. And to see them singing those words that are from Scripture is so powerful in a mall of all places, right? Probably the place of worship today more than churches in most cases. And so here they are singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And one of my sons said to me, are they all Christians? profound question, isn't it? How could we sing the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and of his Christ and he Christ shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever. I think we say it too easy. We sing it too simply. Christ is Lord of your life everyone's life, even the unbeliever. But for you, it's joy. For you, he's broken your heart and given you now a heart of flesh, taken out the heart of stone, and you can't wait to sing that chorus. If Christ shall reign forever and ever, this is not my life to reign over. It's Christ's. Ponder how the advent of Christ has changed your life. My life has changed because it's not mine anymore. I try to take it back all the time, but it's his. And there's some moments of clarity by his grace where I realize it. I pray for you that this Advent is one of those seasons, one of those moments of clarity about who is your life. It's changed everything, the coming of Jesus. So first week of Advent, I challenge you to treasure and ponder the coming of Jesus. First time, look forward to his coming again. Ponder God's careful working out of redemption. Ponder the willingness of Christ to come to earth as a man and ponder how the advent of Christ has changed your life. So, brothers and sisters, let us not become so busy during this time that we fail to slow down and ponder what it all means and how incredibly important it is for our lives. Just like Mary did when it says in our text, and Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for inserting this short but meaningful commentary regarding Mary and her personal treasuring and pondering the incarnation of Christ. Mary obviously had a unique perspective as you called her to such a personal task. Still, help each of us to see both the corporate and personal nature of Advent. Uh, the coming of Christ is such an awesome thing in light of your providential ordering events of events. The coming of Christ is such a personal thing as we need a Savior and a Lord to deliver us and rule over us. Help us to ponder both of these things, the big picture and the smaller personal picture. Help us to ponder these perspectives in a new, fresh, and life-changing way this Advent season. And help us, God, not to become so busy during this season that we fail to slow down and ponder what it all means and how incredibly important the coming of Jesus is. Do this for your glory, Father. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.